0: Well, I have a confession to make to you this morning of sorts, and that is that I have a really difficult time with the book of Romans. Maybe some of you can agree with me there. It's not that it's full of imagery and, and figures like Revelations, uh, but a lot like the book of Hebrews, there's just some, some deep theology there. And uh, when you combine that with the language that Paul seems to use in Romans... Just sometimes goes over my head. And, and I will say that um, sometimes I find it helpful to read from multiple versions uh, so that if I don't grasp the idea from one, maybe I get it when it's worded a, a different way. But still, there are just some parts that I find challenging. Now, please don't under, misunderstand me. I'm not trying to discourage us from reading or from studying Romans or Hebrews or even Revelations. Just because something is more of a challenge doesn't give us a ticket to just skip over it or to ignore it and its teachings. In fact, the Bible tells us that as we grow and as we mature as Christians, we are expected to stretch our minds more and more as we move past that that milk of the Word and we strive to to gain more from the meat of the Word, as Paul puts it in another letter. And I'd say that much of Romans, at least to me, is is pretty meaty. But then there are moments when it seems like Paul kind of takes off his, his scholarly hat, if you will, And just offers some fairly plain and easy to understand and easy to apply teaching. In other words, there's some milk uh, in the book of Romans, too. There's something for everybody. And such is the case, I believe, with the chapter that we want to study today. After going through some some pretty uh, meaty discussions, if you will, in the earlier chapters, Paul lays down some very practical, simple teaching in Romans chapter 12. In fact, he... Uh, As he does in certain portions of his other letters, um, he kind of goes through a a kind of a rapid fire, one-liner sort of of teaching style that, uh, to be honest, can be easy to just skip over over if you're not careful. I know that I've often been guilty of that, such as uh, in the book of Proverbs, just reading over it too quickly and not stopping to think and meditate on the the treasure of wisdom that's contained there. Again, just in short one-verse phrases or, or statements. And so today, for a little while, we want to camp out in, in Romans 12. And we want to take the time to consider some of Paul's practical advice for the Christian that he offers there. To begin with, let me uh, give just a brief overview of Paul's letter thus far, um, just to set the context for our study in chapter 12. The letter, of course, is written to the Christians in Rome. And Paul had for some time planned to preach the gospel in Rome, uh, and there, from there go on to Spain, but so far he'd not been able to carry out these plans. He, he still had these intentions, uh, but he realized that the problem of Judaizing teachers that had disrupted um, churches in other places, many other places, uh, that is those who would pervert the gospel, those who would suggest that the gospel was, was inadequate uh, by itself, that problem, Paul realized, was likely to make its way to Rome as well before he got there. And so to prevent this, Paul writes this letter to set straight the design and the nature of the gospel. In fact, the theme of this letter can basically be summed up in in two verses, well-known verses to us, I hope, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is "...is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith." In these two verses, Paul states his confidence in the gospel and the reasons for his confidence. And then the bulk of of this letter, this epistle, is devoted to explaining why and how the gospel of Christ is God's power to save those who believe. He begins by showing uh, how man's sin has caused a universal need for this salvation how God's righteousness and how justification through faith was the provision that God made for that salvation, how freedom from the wrath of God because of our sin, how freedom from our sin, freedom from the old law, and freedom from death are the results of salvation, and how since through Jesus, both Jew and Gentile can be saved, that there is a a universal scope of this salvation. And so in a nutshell, that brings us to chapter 12, where Paul describes what this new life in Christ should look like. He begins in verse 1 with an appeal to to dedicating ourselves to the gospel and to this new life. He says, "...I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service." As always, notice that word, therefore, and see what it's there for. Paul is saying that because of what he's described in these first 11 chapters, because of God's merciful offer of salvation through Jesus, that we should be willing, in turn, to sacrifice our lives in obedience to Him. In fact, Paul says that that is reasonable. It's it's rational. If we believe that God is who He claims to be, And if we, by our obedience to the gospel, have dedicated our lives to Him, then we belong to Him. And we are obligated to live a life that's holy, that's set apart, and that's acceptable to Him by doing His will. Verse 2 describes further what being set apart means. Paul says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good acceptable and perfect will of God whether we realize it or not I think most of us have a a desire maybe even a, a, a born desire to conform that word conform literally means to to follow a pattern to be like someone else to do what they do to say what they say to wear what they wear and so forth and in our society there is a tremendous pressure to conform to the majority, to the standards of of some group, whatever group you might be a part of. And sometimes maybe we think that's just a problem with with young people, with teenagers, peer pressure as we call it, but adults feel it too. In fact if you think about it, the advertising uh, community, advertisers, they are banking on our desire to be like others and to follow popular trends. If, if everyone wasn't wanting to buy this particular item, then they probably wouldn't uh, be pushing to sell it. But they want you to be like others, and they uh, are banking on that. Now, there's nothing wrong inherently with being like others as long as that pattern that we're following doesn't violate God's pattern. In fact, I would venture to say that uh, some people are guilty of, of trying to draw attention to themselves, and that can often result in the sins of vanity and pride, but they purposefully try to be different from everyone else. Again, not anything wrong with being different either, but uh, it's all about your motives. Unfortunately, though, too often the world's pattern is not one that, that pleases God. The danger of conforming to the world is when it leads to being different from what God would have us to be, separating ourselves From God, And that's why John wrote in 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so we can see here, as John describes, that too often the pattern that the world would have us to follow involves lusts, that would separate us, excuse me, from God. Now, as an alternative, Paul urges that instead of conforming to the world, that we should be transformed. Someone pointed out that conforming really doesn't take a lot of uh, effort, doesn't require you to, to do much thinking for yourself. You just follow the crowd. And while that might require some some shallow changes to, to change to, to be like others uh, on the other hand transforming requires real change in fact that word transform that uh, Paul uses here I understand comes from the same word that, that we get our word metamorphosis if you look back to the to the Greek and metamorphosis of course is a scientific word but but when I hear that word I always think of uh, in the animal kingdom the caterpillar which changes transforms from a caterpillar to a butterfly It literally becomes a new creature. And that's what should happen when our minds are renewed by the gospel, as Paul puts it here. We become a new creature. We have a new way of thinking. We have a new standard to live by. That being, of course, the will of God, not the uh, standards of the world. In Titus 3 and verse 5, Paul describes it as a new birth, a new life, a regeneration And granted, this process does not happen overnight. But as we read and as we study and as we meditate on God's word more and more, the more our minds are renewed and transformed. And so Paul urges us to to be transformed by God's word, by the will of God. Now, beginning of verse 3, Paul shows what this transformation will look like in the life of a Christian. It's one thing to say, hey, we need change, we need to be transformed, we need to be uh, more like God or more like His Word. But what does that actually look like? Well, here's where some of those practical uh, pieces of advice start to come in. Um, He says there in verse 3, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now, in the following verses, Paul is going to discuss some individual gifts, some individual talents that are given by God. And as we'll notice, some of these may have been miraculous. Uh, some of them, I believe, are, are natural and still occur today. But regardless, Paul proceeds, uh, precedes rather this discussion with a warning. Before he starts discussing these gifts, he warns Christians that they should not think of themselves as superior that they should not look down on others who may not share their particular talents. In fact, he says that we must think soberly and humbly. We must neither overestimate nor underestimate the gifts that we or our brothers and sisters have been given. There's so much that we could say here, and I don't want to spend too much time because we've got a lot to to cover here in this chapter. But, But if I pretend to possess a gift, a gift rather, that I don't have, I'm wrong and my self-view is is overinflated. But On the other hand, if I refuse to acknowledge a gift that God has given me and I won't use it for the cause of Christ, then that's just as wrong. And that's a sobering thought. It's one that that deserves a lot of self-reflection as we uh, look at our lives and look at our talents and think about um, what we are good at, if you will. But as I said, it's, it's certainly something that we should, as Paul says, think soberly about. Let's move along, though, as Paul pauses in verses 4 and 5 to remind us that we're all members of one body in Christ. Just as our human bodies have many members uh, with different functions or different talents, if you will, then, uh, and those body members, those members of our body work together for the good of the body, then just so is the body of Christ or the church. Of course, over in 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, uh, Paul expounds on this analogy. He actually gives examples of the ear and the foot and so forth uh, and how they work together, if you will. But he kind of keeps it short here in his letter to the Romans, uh, and he dives right in in verse 6 to identify and to describe some of these various gifts or talents that members of the body of Christ might possess. He says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. I mentioned a a moment ago that at least some of these gifts that that Paul identifies were miraculous or spiritual gifts that were uh, endowed by the Holy Spirit in the very beginning infancy of the church to the apostles. And of course the purpose of, of those miraculous gifts was that so that they could confirm that the message that they were sharing was from God. I can tell you something, and you don't know if I got that from God or not. But if I can perform this miracle, then that's proof that, that I, am, uh, I am who I say I am and that what I'm saying is, is truly from God. That was the purpose of these miraculous gifts. And those gifts ended with the apostles, or at least with the last person who received such a miraculous gift by the, the laying on of the apostles' hands. However, other gifts in Paul's list here that that we're noticing, um, they might also be viewed as natural talents that, that still exist today. And I believe they are. In fact, the Greek word that Paul uses for gifts here is used throughout the New Testament, I understand, in both ways, both as miraculous gifts and as natural talents. And commentators disagree on, on which one Paul intended here, uh, one or the other, or, or a mixture of both, which is what I uh, particularly believe. But either way, as we go through his examples of these gifts, I think we can, can glean some application to, to the church today. And so as the first gift that's mentioned here in verse 6, Paul gives prophecy. Now, if we take that literally, prophecy is, a, by nature, a miraculous gift because the prophet received direct communication from God. God spoke directly to the prophet, and then the prophet revealed what he had heard from God to others. This sometimes included predicting the future, and that's probably how we most often think of, of Old Testament prophets or prophecy. But often it simply meant revealing the truth that God had revealed to him. God, again, spoke to him, and then he revealed that truth to others who had not heard it, who had not received such truth. And, you know, in that case, we might compare it to a preacher of the gospel today. Now, preachers today, again, don't receive direct revelation from God. God doesn't speak directly to anyone today. But a preacher, or anyone for that matter, can read God's will... God's will has been revealed in the Scriptures. And in turn, He can reveal those truths to others who may not have heard or read them before. And no miracle is involved there. And I would argue that such a talent is a God-given gift. Some men have a special skill in studying the Bible and preaching it, um, not only locally, but but worldwide and and, and, in foreign lands. And so in either case... How is such a prophecy to be handled? Well, Paul says that it should be done in proportion to our faith. Other versions have "in agreement with the faith. In other words, no matter how gifted a preacher may be, he has no right to contradict or to go beyond the faith that has been revealed by God. In verse 7, Paul adds two more gifts to his list here, ministry and teaching. Ministry refers to serving or service, waiting on, attending to, rendering aid or relief to. And some some commentators suggest that Paul specifically had in mind here the responsibilities of those who serve as deacons. That does sound a lot like the responsibilities of a a deacon. Uh, These were men who had been singled out as as having special talent in the area of service. But again, again, we all have a responsibility to serve. And if we recognize that we have that gift or if we have an opportunity to do so, then Paul says we must do so wholeheartedly. Likewise, for those whose talents excel in the form of teaching, being able to to glean knowledge from God's Word and to effectively communicate and instruct that knowledge to others, in that case, they must, must teach diligently. Now, this may refer to public teaching, which, of course, can only be done by qualified men. But let's not forget that that we all, again, have the responsibility to teach, at least in private situations, men and women, young and old. Uh, Such as in the example of Aquila and Priscilla in Acts, the 18th chapter. Or in Titus 2 and verse 4, where Paul told Titus to tell the older women that they were to teach the younger women. Bible tells us that we must always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, 1 Peter 3 and 15. And so again, if we have that talent of teaching, we should use it. Continuing on in, in verse 8, Paul adds several more uh, specific gifts or talents that, that someone might possess. And some of these might surprise you. He says, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I said that some of these might surprise you, at least they did me, because I don't always think of some of these things as, as gifts necessarily, but, but Paul did. Um, I found it interesting what Brother Alan Bonifay had to say about that phrase, he that exhorts. In his commentary on Romans, he said, The gift of exhortation is the ability to speak persuasively and to call believers to obedience. Teaching, by contrast, is concerned more with instruction, imparting information, or explaining. The two overlap, but one might be skilled at exhorting, but not be capable of ferreting out the details of Scripture. If so, let him work at exhorting effectively, and leave teaching to those more inclined to academia. Now, I don't know Brother Alan Bonifay very well. I'm not sure which category he would put himself in. But, but as I, as I read his opinion here, I thought of various preachers, evangelists, and how maybe I would categorize them. You know, some preachers are excellent orators or speakers, we might say. They're able to to fire up an audience and and sometimes they'll fill the front pews with those who are responsive to the invitation. On the other hand, there are some who maybe you have to use a little bit more effort to stay stay attentive and to follow them. But they're able to to dig deep and always leave you with a better understanding of the Scriptures than than you had before. And yes, there are some men that are talented at both of those. But my point is that I think there's room for both. I think there's a need for both of those talents in the kingdom, as different as they may be. And I also want to point out that um, it's not only the evangelists who can exhort. That word can also mean to, to build up or to encourage And again, there are many people, men and women, young and old, who who have that talent of encouraging others. I'm thankful that that this congregation has uh, those encouragers, much like Barnabas, uh, who was nicknamed the son of encouragement. And the church definitely needs more Barnabases to to encourage us. Another gift that Paul highlights here is is giving. Again, that was a surprise entry uh, to me in a list of talents, um, perhaps, but But if you think about it, the the very fact that you have something to give, that is in fact a blessing or a gift from God. And so for those of us who are abundantly blessed, Paul says that we should give with liberality or with generosity. Other versions, versions say with simplicity or with singleness, that is with no strings attached. We're just giving it away. The gift of of leading, or ruling, as the King James Version puts it, uh, that probably refers to the leadership of of an elder, most uh, scholars believe. And the leaders of God's people, Paul says, must do so with diligence. Hard-working servants who who labor tirelessly with unswerving attention and unfaltering zeal, as, as one commentator put it. And what's clear is that the office of an elder is one of work, not privilege. And then finally here, Paul mentions the gift of showing mercy. And he says that it must be done with cheerfulness. Some commentators believe this was in reference to uh, those who had been specially assigned on behalf of the congregation to tend to the sick and relieve the poor or, or help the aged and disabled. And um, But I think we should all apply this to, to our obligation to, to show mercy to these and to other groups that of people as we are able. Perhaps some of us have a, a special talent for that. I believe some do. And regardless, Paul says that the work, this work is to be done with a cheerful and an agreeable disposition. In fact, I think maybe that's where the talent or the gift lies. Being able to, to minister to these groups that i mentioned, very often heartbreaking situations, but being able to minister them with Cheerfulness. You think of a nurse that has a, a wonderful bedside manner, even if they're tending to someone who, who knows they're dying. Such a nurse with, with such cheerfulness can, can certainly help not only the, the person, but, but the family members as well. And whether you are professionally trained as a nurse or you just have a nurse's heart, uh, certainly I believe that's a gift that, that you need to use if you are blessed with it. Now, no doubt this is not an exhaustive list that Paul lists here of these talents or gifts But I think it illustrates that there's a a great variety of functions and jobs in the body of Christ. Perhaps we could kind of sum up best uh, verses 6 through 8 here with that proverbial phrase, bloom where you're planted. Probably heard that phrase before. But that just simply means wherever you are, whatever situation you're in, in this case, whatever gifts God has given you, use them. Use them to the best of your ability For the kingdom and for the cause of Christ. Instead of struggling with one another for position and power, we need to serve one another for the good of all. Well, verse 9, Paul continues his practical advice for the Christian. He says, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, of course, Christians are expected to love. But our love needs to be one that's honest and sincere and genuine, without hypocrisy, as Paul puts it. You know, fake love is, is evil, easily recognized. I can say I love you, but my actions can speak otherwise. Sometimes our words, though, do surpass our, our true fi- feelings. We like to talk about love. We like to sing about love. But do we always live up to it? And the key, I think, is in something that Paul has already discussed, and that is being transformed by the renewing of our mind. The more we think about the love and the mercy of God and the more we let the mind of Christ be in us, then we can love more and more as we should. I like what Brother Alan Boniface says here. He says, It is to be a love founded in reason rather than emotion. Christians are to love their fellow man because they have decided to love rather than because they like them or feel good toward them I had to read that two or three times to let that sink in but but that's pretty important I have decided to love my brothers and sisters now hopefully I do like them hopefully I do feel good toward them but that's not the reason that I love them that follows from my, my love Paul says there's more to it though we have to also hate evil and cling to what's good you know sometimes someone can claim to to love someone um, but that's just a cover-up for evil. And if you wonder what I mean there, think about how many denominations have have embraced some of the sinful lifestyles of the day, all in the name of love and tolerance. And at the same time, some people have that hating evil part down, and I'm speaking about members of, of the church. Some people have that hating evil part down pat. But that's all you hear. Their preaching is mostly negative, it's Rarely has any positive message, and either extreme creates an imbalance. Instead, we should hate evil, cling to what's good, and that uh, balances it as it should be. Now, just in case you got the idea that that Alan was saying that we don't have to like our brethren, uh, in verse 10, Paul adds to this thought: He says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another. Again, our love should lead us, if we didn't already, to like and to want to um, feel good toward our, our brethren. Christians are to develop the, the love of friendship with other members of the church, just as you would your own family members. Paul says that we should, in honor, prefer one another. And I think there are several ways that you could interpret that, and, and all of them are, are valid. We should prefer the company of Christians over non-Christians because of what we have in common, because of our fellowship in Christ. We should allow others to esteem us rather than esteeming or exalting ourselves. And we should also uh, love to heap praise and honor our brethren. I'm reminded of, of Paul's words in Philippians 2 and 3 when he said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Continue on in verse 11, Paul throws out another uh, triplet, if you will, of of practical advice here for uh, the daily Christian life. He says, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. King James Version translates the the beginning of this verse here as not slothful in business, and and if you... uh, usually read the King James Version. Perhaps you thought that meant um, in our jobs we shouldn't be lazy. And that probably does apply here, but but in the original language, um, I don't think that's all that Paul had in mind. The original language actually says, in zeal, not slothful. Not slothful in your zeal. And I think the idea there is that we should be zealous, we should be diligent in everything we do, whether it's our uh, secular work and jobs, but especially in the work of the Lord, as the end of this verse implies. The middle phrase here also requires that we do our work with enthusiasm, with a positive attitude. You know, it's one thing to to work hard, but it's another thing to do that fervent in spirit. That word fervent there means to to bubble or to boil. And so again, it's one thing to, uh, to work, even to work hard. Some people do their work, Maybe they even do a lot of work, but you can hear them grumble and complain about it the whole time. Not with, they're not doing it fervently. And so Paul urges us to, to focus on the, the motive behind our work, and that is serving the Lord. And if we realize that our work is basically just tr- us trying to repay God, something that we can never do, but that our work is a, a work that's serving the Lord, then that should help us to have the right attitude. By the way, not to belabor the point, because I feel like this has been taught on uh, more than once lately, but but too often as Christians, I think we all have it, or we have it all backwards. We are diligent and we're fervent in serving our own interests, but we're slothful in the Lord's business. Consider these examples. Do I work 40-plus hours a week for my own physical needs, but then I balk at spending three to four hours a week in worship? Do I get up early to to work or play, but I complain about getting up to go to worship on Lord's Day morning? Do I watch TV, an average of 14 hours per week? They say that's the average, but I can't find three hours a week to to read my Bible. Do I take courses to improve my skills, whether it's for work or for some hobby, but I'm not willing to attend gospel meetings or, or evening services to improve my knowledge of God's Word? can I quote the stats for my favorite sports team, but I can't memorize scripture. And on and on we could go, but but I think we get the point. We know how Jesus felt about not putting the kingdom of God first, and if you've forgotten that, turn to Luke the 14th chapter and read what Jesus said there. We also know how Jesus felt about lu- lukewarm Christians. We can find that in Revelation 3. But as I said, um, we need to make sure that we are fervent in serving the Lord and His work. Another triplet uh, of sound advice is found in verse 12. Paul says, "...rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer." Bible has a lot to say about being joyful. But I think that many people have the wrong idea of joy. Sometimes people think that joy is something that you're born with. It's just your temperament. Maybe even that it's hereditary. Some people are just cheerful or joyful and some people are, are not. And I can't help it that's the way I am. Well, we can't help it. Some people think that joy is just a matter of circumstances. You're joyful when things are going good, but you don't have to be when things are going bad. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, if that's the case, how is it that some Christians can remain so joyful and can continue steadfastly in doing good even when they're suffering hardship. Well, Paul gives us the key here. He says rejoice in hope. The key is hope. Now, hope is something that that makes us focus on the future. In fact, specifically on an eternal future. And I think the point should be made here that there's a big difference between wishing for something and hoping for something. We, we misuse the word hope in our language today, or at least we don't use it the way the Bible teaches. Uh, we say, I, I hope hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, or I hope we're having spaghetti for supper. That's a wish. That's something that, that you would like to happen, but you don't necessarily have the expectation that it might happen. But when it comes to a Christian's hope, we're not just wishing for something to happen. Hope carries with it a firm expectation We hope for heaven. I'm not just wishing for a home in heaven. I'm expecting a home in heaven someday. And certainly with that kind of hope, then we can remain joyful. and We can remain patient through the struggles of this life. Because we we hope, we expect a reward someday. And that confidence is strengthened, Paul says, even more through steadfast prayer. Earlier we learned about the the transformation that that comes by renewing our minds. And uh, one remarkable transformation that that characterized members of the early church was their benevolence, both toward uh, their brethren and toward strangers. And so in verse 13, Paul emphasizes uh, that as he commands them to continue in distributing to the needs of the saints and being given to hospitality. Again, this is something that that the early Christians... uh, we're well known for time and time again we see where uh, Christians shared their possessions with those in need either locally within their own congregation or by sending aid to those far away and it was for this very reason if you remember that uh, the collection on the Lord's Day was was commanded but that doesn't remove the responsibility that we have as individuals to help those in need whenever the opportunity arises and again we should Always look for chances to uh, to give to those who are in need. Another sign of this transformation, this changing of our minds, uh, is found in verse 14, where he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, I think that probably goes against our, our human nature. Uh, Paul didn't just say not to retaliate, even though he's going to mention that in a moment. He didn't just say to, to simply endure the, the uh, persecution. He said to show a a kindly disposition, and to even ask God's blessings upon those who persecute us instead of wishing harm upon them. And, of course, Jesus gave us the perfect example of of what that looks like. Verse 15 calls us to show empathy toward one another. He says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. I like one definition that I found of the word empathy. Empathy it said empathy is to understand and to enter into another person's feelings, to literally feel what they feel. And I think that's what Paul is suggesting here. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And that's what's necessary if we are truly to be one and all members of the same body. But along these same lines in verse 16, Paul urges us to be of the same mind toward one another, Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Being of the same mind literally means thinking the same thing. And of course, as humans, that's very difficult for us all to to think the same thing or have the same opinion. But it is possible when we transform our minds and we seek the mind of Christ. If we are all striving to think like Christ thinks, then we will be of the same mind and that renewed mind makes an effort not to be high-minded uh, that phrase there is translated elsewhere as haughty or snobbish and also to lower ourselves and not be conceited well Paul wraps up this chapter of, of practical advice with one of maybe the greatest signs of transformation and that is how we should respond to evil how we should treat our enemies Certainly this was an important message for those in the early church, perhaps even those in Rome, who might have been being persecuted by uh, not only Judaizing teachers, but by the government themselves. In verses 17 through 21, Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We are to repay evil with good. Again, that may be against our human nature, but but why is that? What, What good does that do? Well, number one because vengeance belongs to God. It's not our right, it's not our responsibility to to repay evil with evil, to to have vengeance or revenge. But also because victory over evil is more likely that way. As he says, therefore, in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And I guess there's different ways to interpret that, but the way I've always thought of it is he would feel shame. He would feel ashamed for having uh, harmed you or having shown evil towards you when in turn you were uh, treating him in the way that That he would want to be treated and after all that that should be our goal to to try to change their minds and perhaps convert them Um, you know as I said the the type of evil here that Paul probably had in mind is much more remarkable than than what we will ever face evil from um, their government evil from false teachers and so forth but but we can start by how we react to just those around us and those who maybe um, abuse us or, or don't treat us the way that we want to be treated. Maybe our reaction can cause them to want to change. And if not, then at least we will be more like Jesus. And As we've said, we have a hope of, of that reward. Well, I hope that you've gained something from our, our study this morning of this remarkable chapter. Certainly much more time and, and detail could be uh, spent in, in describing some of the things that, that Paul lists here. But uh, I would encourage you to, to study not only this chapter, but but more of, of the book of Romans, even though it does have its challenging parts. We never want to end a service without offering the gospel invitation. If there's one here this morning who is of the age of accountability, but you have not uh, taken the steps of belief, repentance, confession, and and baptism for the forgiveness of your sins, then we encourage you to do so today. Or if you've taken those steps but you have not remained faithful and you would like the prayers of the church, then please come while we stand, while we sing.